this morning. I want us to give consideration to the greatest question that was ever asked by any man or any woman. And it's not, how can the sick get well? The question is not, what's the cure for cancer and for heart disease? It's not related in any way to the gospel of prosperity and how to become financially independent or extremely wealthy. Now, now all of those might be interesting and important questions. But they're not nearly as important as the question we want to consider this morning. Because this is a question that is of supreme importance. It's the world's greatest question. Two weeks ago, we talked about the thought of the idea, I don't want to go to hell. Last Lord's Day, we talked about the thought of the idea of heaven. And why that's where I want to go. Today we want to talk about the thought of the idea of what must I do to be saved. In Acts chapter 16, we find there that Paul and his company have arrived at the city of Philippi. In company with Paul, we have his traveling companion Silas, young timid Timothy, and we have Dr. Luke, the physician. Paul had seen the vision of the man from Macedonia who said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so, Philippi is a chief city in that part of Macedonia. So it's the Sabbath day, and on the Sabbath day, Paul and the other preachers go down to the river because there is a place of prayer and there is no synagogue in Philippi. And there at the riverside, at the place of prayer, they meet a woman by the name of Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's from Thyatira. She's very successful. She deals in purple and has a number of employees, and all of her employees are there at the river with her for prayer. She was a worshiper of God. And Dr. Luke tells us that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to the preaching of Paul, and it says that she attended to the teachings of Paul and the things that Paul spoke of, And it says that she, along with all of her household, was baptized. Well, then later, Paul and his company go into the city of Philippi. And there in the city of Philippi is a damsel who's possessed with a spirit. She's a fortune teller, as we would say today. And this damsel brings a lot of profit to her masters by her fortune telling. And she's following Paul and the other preachers around, and she says, These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. They show unto us the way of salvation. This girl is following Paul around. She's saying that over and over. She is on his last nerve, jumping up and down. Tim's translation says she was worrying Paul to death. And Dr. Luke says she did that for many days. So Paul turns around and says, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command the Spirit to come out of you. And the Bible says that the Spirit, that evil Spirit that she had, came out of her that very hour. Guess what? She was a slave girl. Her masters derived a great deal of profit because she was a fortune teller. Well, now Paul has commanded the evil spirit to come out of her, and she can't tell fortunes anymore. 
owners, her masters, they're not real pleased with Paul at this point. In fact, they probably took him off their Christmas card list right then and there. But folks, they did a lot more than that. They caught Paul and Silas and brought them into the marketplace and took them before the rulers because they wanted some revenge. Paul and Silas had destroyed their source of profit. And say they wanted those two preachers put on trial and they wanted them punished. So they brought them to the authorities. And they did everything within their power to prejudice the judicial system against Paul and Silas. And they said, these men, being Jews, they're causing a lot of trouble here in our city. They're setting forth customs that being good Roman citizens, we can't observe those customs. And the multitude of the people reinforced the charges that they made against Paul and Silas. So you know what they did? They took the clothes off of Paul and Silas and commanded that they be beaten. It says they laid many stripes on them. Actually, folks, the Jewish law was 40 stripes save one. And if you haven't studied common core math, you'll know the answer to that is 39. It was a very severe ordeal. It was a custom designed to inflict maximum pain and punishment on the naked body. They used something called a flagellum, the same kind of thing they used to beat the Lord with. Something we would consider maybe a cat of nine tails. A leather whip with strips of metal or bone at the end to cut the flesh. So by the time Paul and Silas had had 39 stripes laid on them, their back was just a mass of open sores and bleeding flesh. And it says after that beating they were put into prison. And the jailer there at Philippi was given strict orders and said, You keep them safely. And they weren't just locked up. They were put into the inner prison. And their feet were fastened in stocks. The inner prison, that was the third compartment of the prison. You see, the Roman prison usually consisted of three distinct parts. There was the common area. That place where the prisoners had light and fresh air. Then there was the interior of the prison that was shut off by strong iron gates with bars and locks. And then there's the third part of the prison, the inner prison, the dungeon, the place of execution, the place for a condemned man. It was death row, and it was in that inner prison where Paul and Silas, the men of God, were placed. And not only were those two prisoners placed on death row, their feet were placed in the stocks. A wooden device that held the feet by the ankles and held them spread apart, stretched widely apart, because this way their back is bleeding from open wounds. Their feet are spread far apart and locked securely in these wooden blocks so that they can experience the most excruciating pain possible. 
They're in a place of confinement. And they're also in a place of torture. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Now, let let me stop right there. You and I have just been beaten unmercifully like they have. We're placed in those stocks. Are we going to be singing and praising God and offering prayer to God? Are we going to be saying to each other, Rodney and I are sitting there, okay? And I say, Rodney, these people better hope I never get out of here alive. And Rodney's going to say, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to get even with these folks if it's the last thing I do. Isn't that more likely what we'd be doing sitting there where Paul and Silas are? But Paul and Silas have been beaten, they've been placed in prison, their feet are in stocks, and they're having a prison revival. And they're singing and they're praising God and they're offering prayers up to God. And the other prisoners heard them, it says. And Dr. Luke continues, And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice and said, Do thyself no harm, we're all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and besought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all of his, straightway. This jailer in Philippi, folks, He didn't know he was lost. He was busily engaged in his occupation and was probably more than a little bit proud of his occupation. Rome was the ruler of the world. He was one of Rome's jail keepers. He was wearing a uniform. And because of the uniform and because of his position, he would have had certain privileges and certain rights and a certain pay. This man was a Gentile. He was a pagan. There had been some Jews in the city who had been preaching. They would stirred up quite a controversy, but that wasn't any concern of his. In fact, if you'd asked this jailer, as he put Paul and Silas into the inner prison that night, if you'd have said, what is your opinion of Christianity? He would have said, it doesn't concern me one bit. This man was lost, without God, without hope, and didn't even know it. He was utterly unconcerned about it. And the story unfolds to show how God got him to be concerned. And there's a reason I wanted to point out the indifference of the jailer. There are millions upon millions of people in this world of ours today who are just as unconcerned about the gospel and Jesus Christ and the things of heaven as that jailer was. Folks that have no special dislike for Jesus, no special dislike for the gospel of Christ, It's just that Jesus Christ and the gospel just simply have no place in their lives. 
like that jailer. They're preoccupied with something else. But notice something. God decided to get his attention. He sent an earthquake. And the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And you know, one of the things you want to know, well, did they have to rebuild the prison? Did they have to use a different building while they rebuilt the prison? I don't know. Dr. Luke doesn't consider that important. The earthquake shook the building. But that's not the main part of the story, you see. The earthquake also shook the man. That jailer was literally shaken. It says he sprang in trembling because he figured everybody was gone. Over the years, folks, I've talked to lots of people. Lots of basically good people. Really good people. People that never somehow got around to becoming interested in the gospel of Christ. I've talked with a lot of people over the years and I've walked away with a very heavy heart. And I've often thought something needs to happen for them to be interested in Jesus. Said another way, the Lord needs to send an earthquake to them. Because sometimes the earthquake in our lives can take a lot of forms. It can be a serious illness. Something that shakes us up and makes us realize our mortality. Something that causes us maybe to think seriously about our relationship to God. And out of our fright can maybe, just maybe come the desire to do something about our soul. Or maybe our earthquake comes in the form of a serious illness for someone that's near and dear to us. Or maybe our earthquake comes in the form of a loss of possessions or the loss of reputation. Or maybe our earthquake comes as a result of our own failure. We must not wait for some tragedy or life-shaking event to cause us to make our lives right with God. Notice what happened. That earthquake came, the prison house was shaken, and that jailer sprang in trembling for fear. Now, I want you to look at the sudden change in that man's life. He's gone to bed that night, pillowed his head, and he is perfectly satisfied. He's a Roman official. He's in charge of the prison. He draws a good salary. He's got his vacation coming up. And I can imagine that he was probably going over in his mind his plans for the next day. But in the middle of the night, God changed his plans. He realized something really big had happened. And when he realized that, guess what? He was afraid. Suddenly, this once proud jailer got a really good dose of humility. And he comes into the cell and he bowed down before Paul and Silas. You see, before we can become completely Christian, we have to bow down and we have to humble ourselves. There's got to be a humbling of our hearts. And here is this pagan, this Roman, this man who wears the insignia of the Roman Empire, bowing down in front of a Jew from Palestine. Bowing down in front of a man of a despised race from a despised country. But he was humble enough to bow down in front of Paul and Silas. And in his humility, he asked the most important question ever asked. He said, 
he bowed down and he looked at them and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It was essentially the same question those Jews asked on Pentecost. When Peter preached to them, and he said, This same Jesus you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. It says when they heard that, they were pricked in their hearts. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Of all the questions ever written, of all the questions ever asked, that, folks, is the most significant question any man or woman on the top side of God's green earth ever asked. You see, that question indicates that man must do something to be saved. Now, the greatest part of salvation, make no mistake about it, the greatest part of salvation depends upon God. It depends upon God's love and God sending Jesus to go to that cross on Calvary's hill to die for my sins. The greatest part of salvation is God's gift of giving His Son to die for me. But we cannot, we must not see, fail to see, that there is a part that you and I must do. What did Paul and Silas tell him? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There's no other starting point. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When any man or woman says, What must I do? The starting point is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But folks, regardless of what some well-meaning people will tell you, regardless of what some very honest and sincere people will tell you, regardless of what the guys on TV with the pretty hair and pretty teeth will tell you, that is not the ending. Because the very next verse says, They spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. That sentence contains several hours of time and many, many facts concerning Jesus Christ. It's what Philip did in Acts chapter 8 when it says he began at the same Scripture and preached to that Ethiopian Jesus. When it says they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house, that folks, means the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. Paul probably began with the prophecies about Christ's coming. There's no doubt that those were mentioned. And then he told about the birth of Christ and possibly about his boyhood. Paul would have certainly told about his ministry and how it began with his baptism by John in the River Jordan. And he would have been told for three years Jesus worked and what He did, and how He healed the sick, and raised the dead, and made the lame to walk, and all of the body of teachings that Jesus left. You see, we've got to remember this man was a pagan. And to him, this was a strange new language. To him, it was a whole new world. It says they preached Jesus to this man. And that's not going to happen in five minutes. That's going to take a while. 
Because along the way, He would have asked some questions and they would have given Him some answers. But after a while, the preaching would be over. And it says He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Remember, these men had been severely beaten with many stripes. And they weren't taken to the emergency room or the dispensary for treatment after that beating. They were thrown in jail. No medical attention. Those bruised and beaten bodies had swollen. Fever had risen in those sores on their back. Every muscle in every fiber of their being would have been sore. The blood on their back would have crusted over in the stripes where they'd been open sores. To say that those men would have been miserable would be the most gross understatement you ever heard. But by now, this jailer who had thrown them into the inner prison, his attitude toward these preachers had taken a 180 degree turn. He took them the same hour of the night and washed those fevered stripes. Can you imagine how good that felt to those men? And you ask, well, what's the significance of that? Why would Luke include that detail of washing their stripes in this story, folks? That act in itself spells repentance in any language. And then we read the next passage. He was baptized. He and all of his straightway. Philip's translation reads, He himself and all his family were baptized without delay. You realize that all happened at midnight. And by this point it is well past midnight. It's probably coming close to dawn. Paul and Silas... They're no doubt suffering miserably from the beating they've had. But it says this man was baptized the same hour of the night, without delay, and so was his whole family. Just using a little common East Texas horse sense. Just looking at that as we'd look at anything with our common sense. What does that say about the importance of baptism and its role in salvation? The man's question was, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, he came to believe in Christ because he repented in a very powerful, very exemplary way when he washed their stripes. And then in the wee hours of the morning, he and all of his household were baptized. Why do you suppose that he couldn't wait till even the next day? What about all the other prisoners he was responsible for? What about the paperwork he was going to have to fill out because the prison had been opened? What about all of his other duties as a jailer? It didn't matter to him at that point, did it? Well, why didn't Paul and Silas, in the excruciating pain they were in, Grimace and through gritted teeth say, as many would today, that baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation. You don't need to worry about that. Hurting the way they were hurting with those open sores and bruised and bleeding bodies. Why didn't they just tell him to 
pray and ask God into his heart? Why didn't they just tell him, well, you were saved the minute you believed and at a more convenient time, some, sometime next week or week after next when we're not in so much pain, then we'll baptize you. Remember, folks, this man was a pagan. His starting point was he knew nothing about Jesus Christ except he had two preachers in jail. That's all he knew. But somewhere in the preaching that night, somewhere in telling that man about Jesus, they had mentioned baptism. Because at the beginning he was in total ignorance. He heard the teaching of Paul and Silas. And he had no opportunity to get any teaching from anybody but those two men. And there's no doubt in my mind that they told him that Jesus had said, as it's recorded in Mark 16, 15, and 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. For this man, to hear that Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. For this man, that would have been all that was necessary. That would have been the end of it as far as he was concerned. Because Jesus had said it. Oh, I've wished over the years that I had the power to make the gospel seem urgent to folks. To make it real enough for folks to see how important it was. To make it to a point the gospel would take hold of people that it would cause them to do something about it. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but today. Here's a man. This jailer in Rome, he came from further away than any of us. He was a pagan, but he came to Jesus immediately. He didn't even know he was lost. But between midnight and daylight, he discovered he was lost, was taught what to do, and decided to do something about it right then and out there. And then it tells us he rejoiced. Why? He rejoiced believing on God with all of his house. Now what I want you to do, I want you to let that story come to life in your heart. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to do what this man did. And if you've done what he did but haven't lived God's kind of life, and that's been observed by others, would you come back and give your life back to Jesus and let brothers and sisters pray with you and for you? Whatever the need of your life is to make your life and your heart right with God, if we can help you with it, it's the Lord's invitation as we stand.